Well, let's turn our attention now, if we can, to the book of Ephesians. Our study through the last three chapters has been titled Walking with Christ. You should have your journal with you as well. Before we dived into or dove into chapters four through six and this idea of walking with Christ, we examined what it was to be united with Christ in chapters one through three. And so we've been methodically, verse by verse, just exploring Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're now three messages away from concluding this series. And as you'll notice, Paul is drawing his letter to a close. You'll see this by the first word in verse 10 of chapter 6. It's the word finally. Everyone in every church loves it when their pastor uses that word. I use it very infrequently, by the way. Um, But Paul here says finally, and so he's kind of drawing things to a close. And one thing you'll notice in our message today in this text as it unfolds over the next several weeks is that Paul is making at least one thing abundantly and starkly clear. And that's this. We are in a battle. Now, it's not a battle with the people you see, which is often what we mistakenly think. I'd remind you that Paul listed a number of relationships in the latter part of five and even back up into chapter four and how we're to be distinctly different in front of others. He mentioned environments where this should happen in our marriage in our homes, as parents, as children, as employees, as employers. And often in those environments, when sin gets involved or there's strife, there's division, we think, oh, this is the problem. Or we think more more, uh, precisely, they're the problem. But see, that's false. Our enemy isn't one that we can see, not spiritually. And Paul here makes sure we understand that the real enemy of the people of God is the one we cannot see. It's Satan. That's the battle we're in. And so he goes to great lengths to help us understand that precise point, that we are in a battle, but it's not with those you you see. It's actually with one you cannot see. And I believe what Paul will do in this set of four verses today is he will point us to the single ultimate goal that God wants you to embrace as you engage in this battle. It is a posture goal. It is a positional goal. We'll see it just unfold from the text, which begins in verse 10. So let's examine the text together. We'll do that by reading it. Then we'll go to our lab and we'll kind of dissect it together. So have your journals ready, have your notes ready, or just have your Bible there and mark in them. My goal is that we'll end that with a simple sentence that will help us unpack what we are to do next, the mindset we're to have. So let's begin, chapter 6, verse 10. Can we? Here's what the Bible would say to us. Finally, and to that we all say amen, right? Here's the favorite word, right? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. What do you say we go to our lab? Let's unpack a good bit of this and see if we can fully understand this singular ultimate posture that Paul is calling for among those who are embroiled in this battle. I want to answer three questions that I think Paul answers. He answers the what question, and by the way, he'll answer that twice, so I'll show you that in a moment. Then he answers the how question, and then he answers the why question. Notice, first of all, if you would, what he's calling for. It is to be strong in the Lord. It's to know the strength of his might. So, first of all, no, this is, in my opinion, I think textually I can prove this, this really is the main point of the text. This is the imperative. It's in the passive voice. This is what he's after. Okay, he's, he's trying to make sure they understand. I want you to know God's strength. And since it's in the passive voice, it's clear. It's not something that you work up. It's not something you manufacture. You don't invent this or devise this. You receive this. God does this for you. And in some sense, he almost says this twice, doesn't he? Be strong in the Lord and then in the strength of his might. Paul's double emphasis is to make sure we understand this is not anything that we can do in and of ourselves. We must seek and, and experience and receive God's strength. Now, that strength has an end game. It is that we would stand. Notice this word three times used. The next verse, he says, God's strength is what helps us stand. He says, withstand in verse 13, a more emphatic form. Then, of course, lastly, he says to stand. He includes the modifier firm, which, again, is an emphatic form. You'll notice that three times he says to stand. So here's what I think is going on. I, I don't think we could just say, know God's strength, even though that is the primary verb in these four verses. But Paul's goal is that you would know God's strength so that you would stand. Are you following me? Everybody kind of nodding their head with me? So let's just use two words to describe really what Paul is, is saying is the main what of this text. He's saying, I want you to stand strong. We could use the word endurance. I think it fits well into what Paul is aiming at. He's saying, have your feet set. And by definition, the word stand means to put into place. There are different forms here used in this text. Some are, in, are emphatic forms, but they all come from this root word, meaning to set into place, to put into place. You, you could use other words that we might um, use more commonly, such as you're, you're not going to budge. You're not going to move. You're going to be firm. Uh, you're not going to uh, be shakable. So the idea of standing strong, of, of lasting all the way to the end, not moving, keeping your place. This is what Paul is pointing to. This is the what of the text, to stand strong in the Lord. Now, I think this is important because we're going to see as this passage unfolds, the enemy you're fighting is an unseen enemy. The enemy that you're standing against is not visible or physical. 
He's unseen. Supernatural, yes. Demonic for sure. But it's not one that you see, touch, and feel. So it would make sense that you can't use then touch and feel natural, physical, visible power to stand against him. Are you following me? This passive voice, this idea that you need power that's not from you, but it's from God. It's, it's logical. It's theological. It's obvious because you're not battling someone that you see. Your, your, your enemy is an unseen, supernatural, personal, and powerful cosmic one. His name is Satan and all of his demons. So you, you have no chance of standing against him if you just are relying on your own strength. You need God's strength, the strength of his might. When that's in play, you will stand. So, so just kind of understand what's, what's happening here. Paul is really calling on these believers. In God's strength, you need to stand. Now, how is that done? He addresses that in verse 11 by, by putting some um, analogies in play. He calls it the whole armor of God. This is how we stand in the strength of the Lord. Or succinctly, this is how we stand strong in the whole armor of God. Notice that this word that, it's a word of purpose. In, the, in seminary language, we call that a henna of purpose. The word is henna. He's just saying this, put on the whole armor of God in order that you may be able to stand. So he connects standing to the armor of God. This is a more specific avenue or the way in which we stand. He does mention it again in verse 13, after the word therefore, do you see that? In other words, to to stand against what verse 12 describes, take up the whole armor of God. And so the, the way or the avenue, the, the, the platform upon which we experience God's strength is through his armor. Now, he'll get more into this in verse 14, and we'll cover this next week. For now, I want to do what Paul does. I just want to stay in the flow of the text. He simply initially labels it generally. He says there's this thing called the armor of God. He mentions it twice. He says it's the way in which we stand strong. So the word that we use to describe like a, a vast array of things, the word panoply, it's, it's one of the words within the text here. The Greek word is where we get our word panoply. Paul here is saying, here's the full array of God's armor. Here's the panoply of equipment, we'll call it, that you can use to stand strong. He gets into it in verse 14, but he's first of all just saying it does exist. And watch this, it belongs to God. You see, often when we say, armor of God, we, we can overlook, I think, really the, the linguistic aspect of this word. When Paul says, put on the whole armor of God, he's clearly saying to us, the armor belongs to God. It is sourced by God. It is God's armor. And the reason I bring this up is because I think it really kind of helps us, again, think about the passive use of the word be strong in verse 10. The idea that the armor belongs to God in verse 11, he's, he's driving home this point that there's nothing in and of yourself that you can do, invent, devise that will help you stand against this unseen enemy. It must come solely, completely from God. So Paul is really urging these Ephesian believers towards a, a level of dependence and reliance that, that, quite frankly, some of us just don't know. This is how we stand, through the whole armor of God. It's from God, it's of God, and it's how we know his strength. 
Now you may wonder, um, why do we take up this armor and why do we stand strong? Well, that's what it gets to next. It's the largest part, at least word-wise, of this set of four verses. It's verse 12. Notice the word for. Do you see that? It comes after the schemes of the devil. Here is the why of the passage. Why are we to stand strong in God's might via his whole armor? It's because the devil has, has many methods and schemes by which he's waging war against you. Now, verse 12, I think, further describes those schemes. The word schemes here, it's the word from which we get our word methods. And verse 12 describes these different methods that are used by the devil in trying to destroy you, steal from you, or to kill you. You say, Todd, why did you mention those three things? That is the agenda of the devil. John 10.10 10. says, the son has come to give you life. The devil, Satan, he's come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. From the very mouth of Jesus, we have the agenda of Satan. And so what he does, these schemes, these methods are all aimed towards that end. Notice how verse 12 describes the methods, the schemes of Satan. He says they are rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and of course these cosmic powers are over the present darkness, which would be Paul's way of describing the sinful world in which we live, the world system, technically, and then spiritual evil forces. He calls them spiritual forces of evil. His point is that there are spiritual forces that are good, angels, and then there are spiritual forces that are evil, demons. So what Paul does is he identifies, I believe, four personal and very powerful minions that Satan uses when he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. They are, again, to repeat, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil. Now, some things about these four that I think are quite intriguing. First of all, they should be dangerously, can I use the word enlightening? I don't want to use the word scary, but these, these four descriptions should be dangerously enlightening and awakening. We are in a battle, church, but it's not with those you see, it's with one you cannot see. Your real enemy is the devil and his minions, his demons, his schemes, his methods. The four of them are listed here. Notice this about these four personal and powerful demons, minions, identities, that they're in the heavenly places. I, I think that's very intriguing because here's, here's why. Just kind of process this. Ephesians 1 tells us that you also are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So this should recalibrate your perspective and mindset. You think that your physical posture on this earth is where the real battle is. And so you see it around, you're like, oh, man, this is... You know, we're going to hell in a handbasket. Actually, what you're seeing horizontally on the planet is just the effects of the actual battle in the heavenly places. That's where the real battle is occurring in the unseen realm. Again, this should be dangerously and starkly enlightening to us. 
It also reminds me of this. Since we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and yet this is where these cosmic powers and spiritual forces are, are getting their orders, and, and this is where they're operating, how does that work? Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, says that Christ, because of the resurrection, was given authority over, and he uses these first two words explicitly, rulers and authorities. You should write that reference down in your notes, Ephesians 1, 21. Because of the resurrection, Christ has now been given authority over rulers and authorities. Ephesians 3.10 says that he is showing to these powers what he's doing in the church. So though this is the, the, the core location of the real cosmic battle, it is already a one battle from God's perspective. This is what's so amazing. So we feel the effects of this evil one, Satan, and his dominions, his methods, his schemes. We, we feel the effect down here, but make no mistake, there's not a question in heaven as to who the victor is. The cross and the resurrection have assured us Jesus Christ has won. He came the first time, and 1 John 3, 8 says this, that when Christ came, he came to destroy the works of the devil. He did that the moment he said, it is finished, all right? He ascended to heaven, and now we're awaiting his second coming, described throughout the New Testament. What he brought at his first coming was the inaugurated kingdom of God. What he'll bring at his second coming is the consummated kingdom of God. He won the victory at his first coming. We'll celebrate it together at his second coming. We're in this time now in which we do experience the negative, sinful, devastating effects of Satan's anger and rebellion against God still going on in the heavenly places, we feel the effects here. But again, like I said, please don't think that, that's still, that the outcome is still up for grabs. Not at all. And there's a day coming, church, when Christ returns. And it's as sure that he'll return as he came the first time, by the way. In actual historical time and space, he came the first time. He will come again. And when he comes again, we'll have the victory celebration. He'll have the victory march. And in this first coming, he did deliver us from sin and Satan's power and penalty. Hallelujah. We still deal with sin and Satan's presence. But when he comes again to consummate his kingdom, he will deliver us from sin's and Satan's presence. Won't that be great and beautiful? Don't we long for that? No wonder in Revelation, we're told to pray, Lord, come quickly. Because in this time, what Paul refers to as this evil day, we are feeling the effects of both the world and the flesh and the devil. The schemes of Satan, the world system, your own lustful, depraved appetites, Satan and his minions and demons, they're waging war against you. They know they cannot defeat God, so they'll do all they can to hurt his creation. But I'm thankful to report to you today that though we feel the effects of it temporarily, it will not be the end or the final result for God's people Jesus Christ has won. It is finished, and he'll return one day, and we'll celebrate with him the, the, our freedom, not only from sin's p- 
penalty and power, but ultimately from sin's presence. And the church said, hallelujah, amen, amen. So I think even in this text, just understanding more about this, there's, there's really good news. We are to stand in God's armor, in his power, because there is a battle going on, but, but this battle isn't really up for grabs from God's perspective. He has won. Notice that in light of the how and the why, Paul now repeats the what one last time. This is verse 13. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Notice that, there's another henna of purpose. You may be able to withstand in the evil day. I kind of described this phrase to you just now, in the evil day. I think Paul's pointing at a couple of things. And again, on this one, we can probably have some different opinions and still be great friends and have coffee together, no problem. There's a variety of, of, of options on what this phrase means. I think Paul has two things in mind. One, the, the gap or the time, I should say, between Christ's first coming and second coming. Uh, this phrase is somewhat apocalyptic. It has Old Testament roots. It's not used in the New Testament in this exact form at all. This phrase, in the evil day. There's a hint of it when Paul uses the phrase, this present evil age in Galatians. As well as earlier in Ephesians, he talks about the, the evil days. So Paul is referencing probably just this, this time between Christ's first coming and second coming, in which we know he won, and yet we're experiencing the effects of Satan and sin in the world still. But that will end when Christ returns. And so this time period is called the evil day or this present evil age or even these evil days. But I think there may be something else in Paul's mind that's a tangent um, and kind of connected to this idea of this time period. I think he's also thinking of specific times. Let me see if I can make an argument for this briefly. How many of you are aware that throughout your time on this earth, there are heightened times in which you experience and are aware of, of increased opposition. Temptation seems to be stronger. The pull to fall away and the pressure to cave, to move off the foundation of the gospel. At times it just seems like, wow, it's really raised right now. It's increased, it's, it's heightened. Have you ever experienced that? I have. I think that's probably something most of us would say, yeah, life is kind of a, a series of waves. The battle's always raging, we'd say, but there are moments that we experience it in heightened forms. I think both are in Paul's mind, personally, which may be why he uses this construction, and the only time he uses it is in this way, to talk about, yes, the time we're in between Christ's first and second coming, but also the times of our life when, when Satan is just coming at you full force. He says, in this time and in these times, here's the posture you should take. Stand firm. Stand strong. Endure. Stay in place. Don't budge. Don't move. Remain. That's the positional posture of the Christian soldier. Now, about this text, this clarion call to stand strong, I want to make one other observation at least about these verses. 
And I want you to hear this well. I know you will. You guys are gracious listeners. You're always very thirsty. I love that about you. But I want to make a, a point from this text, not only from this text, okay? You're hearing me? My point is from where? This text, good. Because you could probably make a point from other texts that would be different than this. But when I look at this text and the call to stand strong, I don't see a lot of words or even um, mentions of, of phrases that call us to advance or to move forward. And I'm not saying that we're not to be on mission. Uh, yes, we are. But in this text, right? In this text, the call is to have a posture of stability, a stance that's so fixed you cannot be moved. I wonder if in Paul's mind there wasn't this idea of the Roman centurion. Some may have called him maybe a century. Their, their job was one, to stand and guard a location. Now, did they, in doing that, often have to engage in battle, make decisions, and take action? Of course they did. But their job was not to take ground or to advance the empire. Their job was to hold the line, was to guard a place, a position, not to budge or move at all costs. Make sure you stay in this place and do your job. I sense that in this text. And so I just want to bring that to your attention that often we can think so much about advancement and making progress. And I'm, I'm not saying we can't make an, an argument for those as well from other texts, but say it with me, from this text, there seems to be an emphasis upon whatever you do, church, don't budge. Stand, stay in place, be firm, endure. I'm moved by that because what is Satan trying to do to the church? He's trying to get us to move off core essential doctrines to, to step away from truth. He does this in a variety of ways, no doubt. Through a variety of methods, his minions, his demons, Yes, Satan wants you to take your feet off the foundation you're standing on, which is Jesus Christ. And Paul's admonition here is, don't do it. You stand strong. Can I just be extremely vulnerable with you in a moment? I feel the weight and pressure of the culture in this way, do you? from sexual ethics. And you could just name your, you know, to, to right to life issues, to uh, God's standards in regards to authority, to what is a man and what is a woman. I mean, from Genesis all the way through the New Testament, you find God's clear word and I feel the weight of a culture pressing in for me to move. You don't believe that, do you? You don't hold to that, do you? You don't espouse that, do you? 
And the answer has to be humbly but bravely, yes, we do. We will not budge. We will not move. Now, Paul in this text does not list the issues that culture was wrestling with, of which they were maybe being asked to move. And I should even use the word ask, being forced to move. But the clear implication is this, that throughout history, for at least 20 centuries now, counting the current one, there is this demonic pressure to move the church And in response, what should we actually do? Stand strong. So we'll talk more next week about how that's done as we cover verses 14 through 20. We're going to take two weeks in January to talk about spiritual warfare topically. So we've got at least three more weeks to kind of make some ground in this. I, I know you're probably thinking, hey, tell us more. Let's get into more scriptures. I'm with you, but let's just unpack this uh, as the text does. And then, of course, topically in January. I just want to bring to you what I promised at the beginning, that the posture of the Christian soldier, of the child of God, is one of standing strong. And you can be sure of this. The winds of culture... And the world's system, as Paul would call it, even John, as they call it this, it's, it's driven by these methods here that are employed by the devil. So be aware, what you see and who you see, that's not your enemy. I know many of you, you want to get mad at who's in office. You want to get mad at a party. You want to get mad at a, a law. I don't think it's wrong to stand up and work for righteous um, situations in a country. But can I say to you in clear scriptural terms, your enemy isn't the person you're seeing. The scripture here says we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood. The word wrestle here is a close hand-to-hand combat type of word. And Paul could not have been more clear. Your enemy's not a political party. Your enemy is not an office holder. Your enemy is not your husband or your spouse or your children or your parents or your employer or your fellow employees. And I would say this to them, you're not their enemy. (laughs) The enemy of God's overarching plan is Satan. And his agenda is to steal, kill, and destroy what God is doing. And it's against him and his methods that we are to stand strong. So I urge you, fellow first familiars, fellow believers, will you join me in doing exactly that? Will you stand strong? Will you not budge? Will you be unmovable? Will you stay in place? It's a lot of words, four verses. Tons of meat in there. We could just keep picking till we get to the bones. I would love that. You would too. We're out of time. Let me try to just give you these four verses in in a chart form. I like putting things as succinctly as possible. Here's 
how I would see this text, and it really brings into focus Paul's bookends, which I think are done on purpose to reinforce the clarion call to stand strong or to, to exhibit endurance. This is what he calls for in verse 10. It's how he ends in verse 13. And then between these two bookends, he explains how we're to do it and why we're to do it. So this call for endurance, it shows us that it's done through God's equipment and because of God's enemy. But the real call of the text, what's repeated and what's highlighted is the call to stand strong. So let's take this text, let's take this table, let's just put it into a simple sentence as we land the plane, can we? Here's really what this text is calling for us to do. To stand strong in God's strength so that we don't fall to Satan's schemes. This is really our take-home action today. It's what I'm calling you to. It's what I'm calling myself to. Our church as a whole, to stand strong. And in a simple sentence, this is how I'd say it. To each one of you, to stand in God's strength so that you don't fall to Satan's schemes. You know, it's, it's important to understand whose strength you're standing in. This may be the largest perspective adjustment you've got to make that your ability to stand is not contingent upon anything in and of yourself. You don't have the wisdom, you're not clever enough, you don't have the strength. Nothing about you, nothing about me enables me to stand against an unseen enemy. It's like the natural physical against the supernatural demonic. I'm a loser every time. Only one person can, can defeat a supernatural demonic enemy. It's God a supernatural, divine God. And we need his divine equipment to battle a demonic enemy. So I want to encourage you, as you kind of take this take-home action, tuck it in your pocket, chewing it all week, I pray one of the largest adjustments your mind needs, will make will be this, that you must stand in God's strength. You must rely and depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ, which means something. Listen very carefully as I wrap up. That this whole statement and this text, which are very positional, and I would even add they're very externally positional. In other words, they speak of a, of a posture and an experience in which we stand. It's something that happens to us. We do it. We experience it. We stand against the enemy. He's unseen, but his effects are seen. And so, we, we take this external position of standing. Yeah, that's what I'm calling you to do. Stand strong. But that external position will never happen without a, an internal position of surrender. You see, I think this is really what Ephesians shows us, that to stand for Christ, you have to first of all be in Christ. And that is a complete position of surrender in which we bow the knee to the captain of our salvation. We say to him, only through you am I able to be redeemed, forgiven, and saved. Through what you've done through your son Christ on the cross when you uh, chose that he would be our sacrifice and substitute, and then you raised him from the dead showing that he, he truly was the one and only sacrifice for our sins. When you did that, God, for all those who believe, you have set them in line to to be your children. So for all who believe, who repent and believe, God says, I'll take you from darkness to light, from orphan to family. 
That's what God does. That's a position of surrender. We say, God, you're right, I'm wrong. You're holy, I'm sinful. I'm lost, only you can save me. You found me, you saved me, God. It's all because of you in the gospel. When that occurs, that's a position of surrender. Then we have the power to stand. Are you with me? So don't focus just on standing today in the sense like, okay, I'm gonna leave here. I'll be, I'm gonna really be a, 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 you know, dig down deep person, man. I'm gonna go out there and I'm just gonna plant my feet and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. That posture of standing only comes because you've previously had a posture of surrender. And if you've never surrendered to Christ and are in Christ, you'll never stand for Christ. And the culture driven by the enemy, Satan and all of his demonic forces will have their way with you and you'll be all over the place. You'll be blown about by every wind of doctrine and cunning craft of man. It's only when you're in Christ, surrendered, can you stand for Christ. I'm calling upon every single one of us to embrace both postures. That's right. In one sense, we take a knee and we live this way under God's authority. In another way, we set our feet and we say to our enemy, I'm not budging. Will you embrace both postures with me this morning? One of surrender to Christ and one of standing for Christ. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.